0: Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions, content, expressed, disturbing, and objectionable. I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and this is Rotations. We're continuing with Dr. Pamela Weibel, and here's Nisarg Bakshi.
1: Yeah. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Rotations. Um, we're here with Dr. Pamela Weibel, uh, talking about the ideal medical care movement, uh, as well as um, her advocacy and work for physician and medical student uh, suicide. Um, so Dr. Weibel, actually, I-, I wanted to open the discussion with, uh, you mentioned uh, in the last segment of this episode that there's many people that write, you, write to you um, around the country, whether they're physicians or medical students. Uh, how, how do you, a- as a physician and, and just as a human being, how do you shoulder all of their burdens or all of their problems that they're having uh, emotionally and, and spiritually? How, how do you manage all that?
2: Well, for whatever reason, I think I'm sort of an emotional bungee jumper. I really love being on the edge of life and death. Um, maybe it's why some people like to work in the ER. You know what I mean? They just love the adrenaline rush. I think I, I just feel like I'm most at service on this planet when I can be with people at a time um, of life or death sort of, you know, situation. And, and, and I happen to just be really attracted to psychiatry. You know, I think it's because when I was little, my mom was in her psychiatry residency, and my bedtime stories, she would have me read psychiatric uh, medical journals She with her, and she would stop at all the um, the psych drug ads, and she would make me look at the pictures of the people screaming or freaking out and make me tell her a bedtime story based on what's going on. <laughs>
0: You had a very distorted oh. childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: was like, "This woman had." I make up. Mom, as a true psychiatrist, she has made me tell her my own bedtime stories based on her psyche. There were no
0: work. Care Bears in your life.
2: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and I have to say, you know, it's really funny, like, as far as, like, oh, it's so interesting that I'm working with medical students. You know, I've had one credit card my whole life, and it's the American Medical Student Association MasterCard that I got when I <laughs> for residencies, and I've been carrying it around all these years, and I think they've been getting a, a percentage of everything I've bought for 25 years, but I think, I don't know, there's something about medical students that just uh, stuck with me, and I found out later that my dad, while I was being born, my mom was having a C-section, my dad was actually teaching at the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, and he pulled his medical student class on what my name should be, and isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> my mom wanted to name me Victoria. I really like Pamela. And that name was picked by um, a class of medical students for me. So, (laughs) so it's destined. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like in a way I'm destined to do this work in the world. So it gives me, I feel like I found my calling. And when you feel like you've found your calling, you get a lot of energy from it. Um, I mean, I'm sure most people don't want to do 13 town hall meetings in 48 hours, but it makes me um, more energized, right? Um, one time I had an interview with somebody from Poland, I believe. Um, he had like six pages of questions on physician suicide, and we had to arrange our Skype interview at like midnight just because of the weird time zone difference between Poland and the U.S., and and he told me if I was tired that, you know, he, he could call back another time and we could do half the interview now and later. And I was like, no, oh, no, suicide. It brings me to life. I, I love this topic. I could talk about it all night long. And so I think I'm just meant to do this. So it's easy for me somehow. And um, the other thing is that um, I just, I feel like I'm being of service in a realm where there's not a lot of, a lot of other options for people. And, um, and as far as taking care of myself, by the way, I live in a beautiful place where I can take lots of naps in a calm, sweet town, Eugene, Oregon. It's not like a high pressure city. Um, I used to complain, by the way, to my therapist <laughs> before the suicide hotline, I used to complain that, um, I feel like I'm stuck in a special ed class and I can't get out. Like I, I just feel so under stimulated by life. Um. But the suicide hotline is really stimulating me in a way that nothing else has. And she told me, that's because you're stuck in a, you're like moving at cocaine speed in a marijuana town. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I would just say, I I love this topic. And I love the fact that, you know, people write me and they say, I would have been one of your statistics, but you answered the phone that night or you responded to my email. And so when I get feedback like that, it makes me want to, keep doing this, right? Because I feel like I'm finally doing what I was born to do. So.
1: It, it is great. And speaking as a medical student, it is great knowing that, that you know, you're, you are available as a resource uh, if, if I ever do need it. Um, what, what other resources are available if, if you're a medical student or if you're a physician? Um, I know a lot of, I, you know, I'm not a physician, obviously, but I know a lot of physicians worry about You know, am I going to be perceived differently if I pursue um, psychiatric help or or anything like that? So what sorts of options are available?
2: So I think a lot of what people need um, can be delivered like outside of the allopathic or even osteopathic you know, medical system outside of Western medicine. I mean, I think medical students should just try to be getting like a massage once a month or do something where you're not going to be able to continue to give people healing without having a healing team around you. I get a massage like every week. Okay. I go to therapy <laughs> every week. I Um, had my astrology chart done. I had my palm read. Like I go to people to get help. Uh, I mean, I talk to my hairdresser. I will talk to anyone who wants to listen to me about what's going on in my life because I can't do this alone. It takes a village, you know, so please don't think that you can be this lone wolf out there providing healthcare for others without receiving ongoing healthcare yourself. It's kind of like flossing your teeth if you didn't do it for a few years you know, there has to be a maintenance program for you to be on. And so I think we need um, some medical schools. I know medical students are trying to create peer counseling programs there where there's like peer to peer counseling. And that's something that can easily be done at all medical schools. Um, There are, there are lots of psychiatrists who will see you like off the grid so you don't have to report it. And hopefully one day soon, we won't have to worry about these invasive questions on our You know, insurance contracts and hospital privilege licenses and medical boards and all that. Maybe they could take these questions out so that we don't feel so um, worried about um, dying by professional suicide if we were to seek help. So... So I think there's a lot of people out there who want to help us. Like Part of the problem is that we have been acculturated through medical school, and even before that, I think a lot of us are used to being the smartest person in the room. We're used to helping the slow students. We're used to helping, you know, volunteering and all doing all these things. We're not used to asking for help. It is so hard, apparently, for us to learn how to ask for help, and I think medical students need to practice asking for help and asking for help early on in their medical careers. If you're having academic trouble, like don't wait till second or third year, like ask for help in the first month of medical school, right? The the number of times I have to tell physicians who have my cell phone number, who can call me anytime to call me and they still don't do it. And then they end up having terrible business problems and they make bad decisions. Like, why didn't you call me? I could have helped you in five minutes understand what to do with a certain problem patient or what's going on with your billing or whatever. And they, I think we resist asking for help. So we're actually part of the problem. Part of the problem is our basic personality is we don't want to ask for help.
0: Yeah. It's a big, it's a big issue as a practicing physician in that, um, I feel, uh, just had a conversation with a colleague last night that I had some questions and it's one thing in the academic environment, it's a little less severe in that we tend to be more collegiate, and if there's a question, you can kind of talk, and let's go get lunch, and let's talk about this issue. But I, you know, I've experienced doubt. It's a very lonely thing to be a physician, and I am wondering how we teach each other to be receptive when one of your colleagues comes up and says, man, I'm just, I don't feel well. Not just that you know what to do when they say it, but that The environment such that a physician who is in crisis or who's facing crisis feels comfortable saying, "I've got a few professional colleagues that understand my life. I can go talk to them when I need to." And how do we create a culture like that? Uh, Because it's not coming from the top down, from the corporate overlords. It's coming. It's got to come from within the profession. There's got to be a cultivation. Say, "Look, we've all paid our dues. We've all gone through medical school. Yes, we're we're all Type A crazy people. But you know what?" It's not a competition anymore, and we have to start looking after each other as a profession, or we're going to have these tragedies that occur that could have been mitigated, maybe. I don't know if you have thoughts on that.
2: Well, I have a few thoughts. Like uh, As far as within the system, I would say it would be really nice the first week during medical school orientation to have a panel discussion where you have some of the well-respected professors at the medical school sit in front, including maybe uh, some upperclassmen maybe five or six people panel discussion where they each share some sort of uh, mental health uh, situation they were in, whether it's like, oh gosh, I had a malpractice suit, I thought I was gonna quit, I was crying every night, I started drinking, Um, I didn't ask for help, and then I suddenly did this, this, and this, and I got my life back on track, and here I am teaching at medical school, you know? And then somebody else could share, you know, that they had suicidal thoughts. As a first year medical student, that this is what they did, they used the counseling service, service at the school, and maybe the counselor could stand up and pass out her cards then so people could see, like, this is a real person, she's really nice, and she helped this guy. And so I think if everyone would get up there, including if some people could really tell their story to the point where, like, they start crying or really not just... We can't just intellectualize this problem. If it's an emotional health problem, it can't be solved with a PowerPoint, okay? It can't be solved by just talking about it at a distance, you know, with large numbers. People need to see actual friends, colleagues, and physicians that they aspire to be in their medical school shedding a tear, telling their real stories in front of the room, and giving people permission to then be emotionally accessible. At the medical school, right? Because then everyone in the room will want to raise their hand and say, "When they were having a tough time, right?" So, so that's one thing. I think in a hospital system, like let's say in the ER, they should definitely be doing this. You know how, like, if you have a, a catastrophe there and you need to call the chaplain to help, you know, a family who just lost their child in a car accident, you know, uh, you probably need help too because you just had to tell some parents their child died in a car accident. There should be like a broom closet that they clean out and put a couch with some um, refrigerator so you don't have to steal the patient's apple juice to get some nourishment yourself, right? Where you could lay down, there should be a call button for the doctors to call. That is so
0: true. (laughs) That is so (laughs) true.
2: You know how many broom closets that we could empty out in the hospital to just put it in a couch and a dorm-sized fridge to let a doctor lay in there for a minute and cry or take a breath between tragic cases and get the chaplain in there? This is so simple. But why hasn't this been done? I think because nobody's talking about it. And I mean, it's like pretty much a zero cost that the chaplain's already getting a salary. You know what I mean? Like It doesn't cost the hospital anything. Okay, So that's the second thing. Um, the third thing which is something that all of us could do all right and it's really funny because some people will email me and uh, they'll tell me about how they're you know having terrible time in their residency and they're disillusioned and all this and maybe they're suicidal who knows and I I'll um, call them back if I'm at my computer sometimes because I'll see the email come in I'll call them back within like 30 seconds and they'll be like oh my god I just emailed you I can't believe you're calling and I'll say Yeah, yeah, I'm calling, like, because I just want to, I happen to be sitting here, like, what's going on? And I have to spend the whole first five minutes making them feel worthy to receive help because they just can't believe anyone's calling them. And so I do it partially for shock value. And then I'll say, well, let me just ask you a question. Like, if you got page to the ER now, like, would you call them back in 30 seconds? They're like, yeah, I'd be down there in 30 seconds. Oh, wow, well, I'm just doing for you what you already know how to do for other people. So we already have the skill set. So I wonder why we're not using it on each other. And then we have dead silence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Weibel, if um, you know, if one of us was in a position where, let's say, one of our colleagues or one of our friends says, "Hey, I'm having some trouble," how how do we approach something like that? Um, outside of you know, suggesting they contact you or they contact some other some other service, how how should we approach that?
2: Well, I think what most people need, and I didn't even know what this was, is a warm line, not a hotline. Do you know the difference between a warm line and a hotline? I
1: don't no. think so. No. no. <laughs>
2: line is like really when you're standing on the edge of the hospital building getting ready to jump you know like that's a hot like you need help right then and there warm line is like gosh if I just had somebody to talk to me and 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 if I could just tell somebody I think my marriage is falling apart and I can't I don't know what I'm going to do with my next NICU rotation you know I'd feel better, right? So most people probably just need a warm line. And that's probably mostly what I'm doing on the hotline is being a warm line, you know, which you don't need any advanced training or skills to do that. It's just called being a compassionate human on planet Earth. You could probably do that with a homeless person on the corner if they'll listen to you long enough about how you're doing on your rotation. You know what I mean? But it would probably be better to tell somebody who really gets what goes on in medical school, you know, because that's, That's, I think, the problem with these, uh, let's just say, the American Federation of Suicide Prevention National Hotline, is you're calling somebody who's not also a medical student or resident. You get a random person on the phone. And I think what people need is they need to talk to somebody who's just like them, and hopefully somebody just like them who also has had similar feelings like they have had at some point in their lives. So I guess I want to put you all in charge of running your own little mini suicide warm line or help Line or whatever with like, I don't know, the people in a one mile radius of where you're sitting. I mean, anyone can do that at any time. I mean, you could even put little business cards together and give your classmates like call me anytime if you've had trouble. Um, you know, here's what I could help you with study skills or I've, 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 I have a really great technique for panic, um, and anxiety, you know, panic, uh, attacks, you know, cause I used to suffer from them. You know what I mean? Like you could let people know like, Oh, wow. I'd love to help you. If you ever have any of these problems or you ever need anyone to talk to, call me anytime, you know? So,
1: yeah, that's, a, that's a great idea. Having a warm line. <laughs> I like that. And another
2: thing that I thought they could do, you know how we learn how to do like blood pressures on each other and we learn how to do, you know, we, st- you know, when we need live people to examine apart from we're probably not learning rectal exams on each other. You have like a, a person come in for that, but like you, you, when medical students learn on each other, you know, how to listen to the heart and lungs and stuff like that. Right. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. So, you, yeah. so why don't you learn with each other how to provide psychological and emotional support? Like why not start like a, medical student warm line where you're on call for like, cause I think sometimes like the first two years of medical school, it's a little bit boring because it's all book learning, you know, and, and memorizing and you sort of feel like you wish you were able to do something with a real patient. Why not create a call service for first and second year medical students where they're on call for each other, you know, maybe two at a time. So you don't feel alone like you're alone with a problem you can't handle and there's somebody else on your team and you're on call on a rotation for each other for any sort of, um, help that people need in the middle of the night you know what i mean they could call the ohio medicine student helpline you know what i mean
0: yeah like, that's that's cool, a fantastic right? idea yeah and yeah, actually like, it's not a bad idea at all if you could get a buy-in from all the schools in ohio what is there's, there's eight nine how many medical schools do we have nine not counting the branch campuses
1: less than that yeah, i'm just think thinking six, six, that's something six. that
0: uh, SAMHSA. samsa could get involved with yeah at least in the osteopathy schools i'm sure there'd be buy-in from the allopathy schools to say look what if we all got together and we had this giant call list and just yeah. we're going to be on call anyway so you know basically <laughs> the people who are you know willing to do it i think that's really inspired that's a cool idea
2: yeah and yeah. you could even school by school so people know that it's somebody in their very own class or i know or not whatever you think is best but um, it just will create like a collaborative loving environment versus like you know it'll it'll help people practice asking for help it'll help people um, help one another because they're officially on call for each other and they'll consider it a job that's important you know, and maybe there'll be a little bit of training on how to, you know, ask open ended questions and do motivational interviewing or, or whatever sort of little bit of training you need. But um, and then, you, you know, have attendings on call above the first and second year medical students so that um, I just think that would be a really
0: I think really a lot of easy. people would want to help with that, too. I think that would be very, very I think a lot of people would feel like they could get it, get their feet into that. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah that's yeah. a really cool idea. See, Oregon's at an advantage because they don't—they have what one medical school, Oregon sure. Health Sciences, yeah. right? So they, they...
2: have an osteopathic one an hour from my house, and they're pretty lucky because I oh, speak there. Oh, that's
0: right—they just <gasps> opened that, didn't they?
2: <gasps> <laughs> you know, but, say it
0: again, yeah. Pam. I missed that. Oh,
2: I, I speak there all the time, like basically for free because I only live an hour away. Is so... it
0: Salem or where is it? Ashland?
2: That's Lebanon. Lebanon. It's in where, Lebanon, which is just uh, between Eugene and Salem. It, it's like really an hour away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: So I wanted to switch gears, uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your ideal medical care clinics. Um, can you talk a little bit about your decision to leave the hospital setting and, and start creating those?
2: Okay, well, I never was really into hospital medicine. I, I always wanted to do outpatient family medicine, but I tried, like, working, I don't know, for migrant health farm worker clinics, community health centers, you know, big multi-specialty groups, you know, basically... I tried all these different employment scenarios, and then I realized that uh, none of them were really allowing me to be the version of a physician that I had imagined on my personal statement. Because I think they wanted me in these seven-minute visits to just kind of uh, churn patients through, so they could make a lot of money off of keeping people coming and going. And so I, um, I just decided that you know, what would be ideal. I wanted to I really was curious. I wanted to know like, gosh, what what would I know what's not ideal. That is not ideal for me. And it doesn't seem like it's ideal for the patients. So I just pretty much turned the question over to anyone who wanted to talk to me. Like, gosh, what would be ideal for you? And um and so it's been really fun. Like I opened my clinic, like I said earlier, I got a hundred pages of testimony, adopted ninety percent. We opened one month later. And I um since then I've been helping other physicians learn how to do this all around the country and helping medical students because it it's never you're never too young to start doing this. Like I actually at my a few retreats ago it's so funny I had this I had this woman, she had emailed me. I thought she was like a 40-year-old physician. But at the end of the, she said, I read your physician suicide letters book. I have these different questions. You know, it was a really advanced email at the very end. She goes, but I'm only 16 and I'm in high school. I'm pre-med and you probably don't have time to return my message. And I was like, are you kidding? You should come to this retreat. So I brought her to the retreat, man. She was awesome. The 16-year-old pre-med was just bouncing through the air. So excited to get to hang out with all these doctors, um, medical students. And, uh, so I think it's never too early to start planning your ideal clinic, your ideal life, you know, like whoever you're sitting next to, like I said, at the bus stop laundromat, wherever you are, like, just, just get excited about your future and, and start, um, engaging people around what they want. And it's, it's just very easy to do this. I mean, all around the country, people are opening these clinics. And so I encourage you to get excited about your future. Can you talk a
1: little bit about what that clinic looks like? Um, you know, you mentioned in another, uh, I think it was in a, in a TED talk, you, that you don't have a staff, that you're the only person at the clinic. Talk a little bit about how that works.
2: Okay. So when people want an appointment, they just email me through my website. And I, since I have sort of a low volume practice, I kind of like, I'm a little bit OCD. I like to schedule my own patients because um, I definitely don't want to like have three hypochondriacs in a row because that would wear me out. You know what I mean? So there's a way that I like to people and I sort of know how much time people need because I really understand what my patients want from me. And so, uh and then we have our visits which so I schedule people here from my home. This is, you know, my little from my phone here. <laughs> <laughs> This is an actual little home office where I do my administrative work, right? And then I go about a mile or two down the street to a wellness center where I have a two hundred and eighty square foot office where I see people just one at a time in a really safe, sacred little space with, you know, a futon and a wicker chair and shag carpet and it's really cute and you know, warm and cozy and we could sit on the floor and whatever. So um, and I have, like, my exam table in my little exam room, it's all, like, Caribbean theme with, you know, a painted sky. I mean, it's really, it's really like, a sweet office. So people love it because they get my time and attention, and then I've never turned anyone away for lack of money in 12 years. I submit my own claims through an online clearinghouse and get paid usually within two or three weeks, but uninsured people can come and they can do sliding scale, and some people who don't have money on occasion, you know, I just let them volunteer, like, to, I don't know, do whatever they want, community service. Like if I'm going to, I basically don't believe in charity care because a healthcare should not be a passive experience or it's mm. deep. You know what I mean? So people who come who really don't have money, um, I let them volunteer. They can volunteer at the soup kitchen. They can volunteer. You know, basically I ask them to give an equal amount of time to some sort of community service since I'm seeing them for free. I want them to do something nice for somebody else for free. You know what I mean? So that's that way I can sleep at night, knowing I've never turned anyone away who's wanted to see me in the past 12 years, and that everyone has contributed something, whether it's money, time, energy, whatever. You know, it is really a community clinic that helps the community. So,
1: last segment of this episode, um, Nick brought up the idea of, of pushback. Uh, have you gotten any pushback from just for these clinics, whether that be in the community or from other physicians? Uh, what's what's the response been like?
2: Okay, I personally have not received any pushback. Um, I think there are people that are in various stages of disbelief that this can work, but they don't necessarily engage with me. The reason why I know there might be some resistance I don't feel it personally, but the filmmaker for the Do No Harm film that's coming out, she always asks me, like, okay, like, don't you feel bad that you weren't invited to the National Symposium on Physician Suicide Prevention, the big think tank that the ACGME put together? I mean, you are an expert on this topic, and they didn't invite you. Like, how does that make you feel? I was like, I didn't even know they were having a symposium, so... I didn't really feel any certain way but now that you're telling me they're having a symposium I feel sorry for them that they're not really interested in engaging in this topic in a real way because I have a lot to contribute that would help them understand this topic but if they want to keep i watching PowerPoints and choosing sort of a way of dealing with this, like with academic masturbation, doing the same thing that doesn't work or whatever. I mean, I just feel sorry for people who are not really interested in taking serious action. You know what I mean? And you don't have to do it my way, but I certainly have information to contribute and I'm a, Nice person, you know. Basically, people like me when they talk to me, and I'm not confrontational by nature. I just tell the truth, and sometimes sometimes people don't want to hear the truth, and it's hard to unhear the truth once you hear it. And maybe that's why I'm not invited to some things. But there's uh, a
0: there's a there's a point to that, right? Uh, you know, recently we talked to a, a physician who is a got like. 300,000 Twitter followers. And there was a big debate in the American Diabetic Association Conference where they were telling people not to tweet out photos of slides of information. And uh, that's one of the reasons why this vehicle is effective, because, you know, it, it, I think some of these organizations have become so large and so entrenched in a mindset that they think that they, they, they're the only, basically the only... Every problem's a nail to them. They only have a hammer, and they don't know how to react to social media. They don't know how to react to people being proactive and in getting information out in different avenues. And there's a, there's probably an effort to delegitimize that, but I think we're beyond that. I think now we have people with credentials, we have people who have explored other areas of social media, and now here you are talking to us, and it reaches an audience that they can't reach. And if they don't get on the bandwagon and start uh, co- being cooperative, they'll be marginalized to the point where no one will take them seriously. It'll be like, there'll be a few people who go to these things, and then the rest of people say, no, I get better content out of talking yeah. to rotations yeah. <laughs> or, or or going to Dr. Weibel's home phone and calling her up and asking her directly. I mean, you know what I mean? I I, I want to make sure we don't... Uh, we, we're going to need a third segment, Dr. Weibel. Is that okay?
2: Oh, yeah. How long are we going? I'll talk all day. No, long- we, we,
0: just th- a third segment, just to keep the timing. Isn't and I were talking about this earlier to keep tightening up our editing? But uh, I do. You obviously look like you're not starving, because and the reason why I say that is because there is this perception that unless you, you know, buy into the traditional model and your office looks like an international departure lounge, like Caitlin said, you know, I mean that that you can't survive as a physician. And I I grew up in a golden age of medicine. In fact, my great uncle is one of the most respected family doctors in the state of Oregon. He's from Klamath Falls anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, and he said, you know, you take care of your patients, you watch your bills, everybody gets paid. You make a good living. Everybody's happy. Do you make a good living? Dr. Weibel?
2: I make a great living. See? I mean, I- yeah. I keep, you know, that's the thing. There's this misconception that, oh, you're either an idealist and you're poor sitting in, you know, like a tent uh, or you're rich and you have no meaning in your life and you're just, you know, playing the game, right? No, the, the honest truth is if you serve your patients with your heart and soul and your intelligence that, you know, if you, be, if you become a self-actualized healer, the one that you defined in your personal statement when you entered medical school, people actually do want to pay for that and they'll pay top dollar for that. I mean, one woman from um, retreat who just took her a while she did the retreat like three or four times before she opened her own clinic in Texas and um, and and she said I mean, she felt guilty and sometimes we devalue ourselves. So she, she has a DPC model, a direct primary care. So they're paying a monthly fee. And I think she started like at $75 a month and she felt so guilty, like going up to $95 a month. And I was like, look what you're doing for people. I mean, you're in a town where people have a lot of money, $95 a month for house calls and everything that you do for people and onsite labs and this, that, and the other. I mean, you, like just charge what you're worth like you're and plus she sees everyone over 90 for free you know and i uh, I mean and she never turns anyone away like she makes all sorts of deals with people so she said yeah you're right I mean there was this one couple that came to me and they had previously been spending forty thousand dollars a year for another doctor I guess the fee was twenty thousand dollars per person and they actually said they were getting better care for me for 75 dollars a month and I was like See, you're worth $95 a month, you know, and she's like, Yeah. And so, anyway, it's just we devalue ourselves. I think we've been devalued for so long, um, you know, with $20 co pays, and patients think that's what a doctor's visit should cost is $20, you know, and, and I, I think it just gives the wrong message to everyone. I mean, we're saving lives, we're doing things for people that are like absolutely amazing, and we should not. Be ashamed to charge properly. Um, You know, I don't believe in creating a two tiered healthcare model where it's going to be $20,000 per person or you can't come see me, sort of thing. And I think most of us go into medicine, you know, not wanting to create a two tiered healthcare model where we're only serving the worried, well rich and the poor left behind to be taken care of by assembly line big box clinics that are medical school hospitals, you know, or whatever, teaching hospitals. So I think. We're in this really amazing um, space right now where people are demonstrating what's possible. And it's so exciting. I think it's the best time ever to be a medical student and to be a doctor because there's so many exciting new delivery models and entrepreneurial ventures that physicians are starting and the fact that we can just even be connected right now through social media is incredible you know like just the way that an idea can literally spread across the world if it's good and um and change the face of medicine i mean i'm really excited I, I, <laughs> I,
0: I want you to keep that that uh that attitude for just a minute while we while we close this out to close this out and start we'll go to the third segment yeah we'll, sure yeah.
1: Yeah, like Dr. Frederick said, we'll uh, we'll see you guys again in the third segment of our discussion with Dr. Pam Weibel. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Weibel. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, and you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at Tweeting us at Rotations or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations.